Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Saturday, January the 8th, 2022. It is currently 1016 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. And this is going to be our last Bible study exercise for Micah chapter 5. It has been a long week of study. You may feel that, well, you, you, you've done, you've even thrown in a special episode. What more can you do? I, I don't know if, there, if I can really add any more to all the things that we've talked about this week, but I just feel like I need to do a little bit more. It's just this chapter is presented so many challenges. It has been great conversation with everyone who's participated in the Bible study. People have done a lot of research. People have done a lot of work. I really appreciate everyone participating in the discussions in the Theology Central Discord channel. That has been really uh, you know, beneficial, encouraging. I think I hopefully everyone has benefited greatly from that. Everyone has emailed me their outlines and everything that they've found in their own study. I hopefully, I hope, here's what I hope. I hope everyone has benefited who has participated. So everyone who's been participating and you've been researching and you've got notebooks filled with your notes and everything that you've done, I hope you've benefited. And I hope for everyone else, maybe you didn't engage in the actual study that way, but you've been listening all week. I hope you have found it to be beneficial as well. We've done a lot of things. We've talked about a lot of things. I, I, in some ways, I don't want to move on, but remember, we, we try our best. We try our best to say, okay, this week, you know, one week, one passage of scripture. That's what we try to do. I could move on and then just, you know, I, well, I could, I guess what we could do is we could move on to another Bible study exercise and still maintain and keep doing some work in Micah chapter five. But I, and I even thought about doing that. But here's the reality: if 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 we have two different Bible study exercises going on, I think you probably can guess that most people are only going to participate in one. So um, I need to bring this one to an end, and then uh, here in a little bit, I'll introduce our new week of Bible study, and we'll be we'll have to see what we're going to be doing this coming week. Um, I hope again, I hope everyone is benefiting from this. I'm putting forth as much work as I can trying to really dig into these texts of scripture, uh, scriptures in a way that maybe other podcasts would not do. Maybe in some cases, even your church would not even take the time to do what we're doing. So I hope you're really benefiting from this. I'm going to continue to put as much work as I can into these Bible study exercises, because if there's ever a time where Christians need to be actually engaged in actual serious Bible study, and stop being distracted and hijacked by every other thing going on. It's right now in 2022. So are you ready? Here's what we're going to do. Hopefully this will be fun. Um, I I didn't know what, I, I thought about moving on to something else and say, you know what, I'm just going to, I think I've done enough on Micah chapter five. I'm going to move on. And I was just kind of walking around the church trying to think about, okay, what 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 broadcast do I do next? So I'm just kind of walking around the sanctuary and then all of a sudden, I look down and I see up, up near the pulpit, a table near the pulpit, I see this commentary series 
on the minor prophets. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know this commentary was here. It's the Way of Life commentary series, Minor Prophets by David Cloud. Now, I don't agree with all of everything that David Cloud would teach, but I have his commentary here on the minor prophets. And I'm like, you know what? Let me just grab that. We'll run, I'll run back, turn on the microphone, go live, and we'll just do one more kind of survey of Micah chapter five based off this commentary. We'll, we'll just see what he has to say because nobody, I doubt anyone who's participating in the Bible study um, group or anyone participating in this Bible study, I don't think anyone probably has this commentary. I don't, pro- I don't think anyone probably referenced this commentary. Probably have never even seen this commentary. So I'm like, okay, that will, that will present them something they don't have access to. So that will be beneficial. And he will probably take a, an approach that's very different than the approach we heard in the sermon that we reviewed. So that could be beneficial as well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Micah chapter 5. We got our Bibles open, Micah chapter 5. And let's, I'm just going to, well, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to start reading the commentary. And when they reference Micah 5, we'll go back and read that section that they referenced. Does that, does that make sense? We're just going to work through the commentary. We have worked through the text. You're supposed to have been reading it and reading it and outlining it. You're supposed to have memorized Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So hopefully you're very familiar with the text. So we'll just jump into the commentary and go back to the text when they reference it. Here we go. Micah chapter 5. They give the chapter this title. Israel's ruler. Israel's ruler. So they, David Cloud, believes that Micah chapter 5, that what you should take from it is that you should be introduced to the ruler of Israel. Well, let's see how he articulates this through his commentary. Here we go. Micah chapter 5, this is page 229 in the Way of Life commentary series, Minor Prophets by David W. Cloud. All right, here we go. This is one of the most wonderful messianic prophecies It describes the Messiah's birthplace, his authority, his eternal existence, his shepherding, his greatness, his victory, his peace, and his vengeance. All right, so this is really emphasizing this is about the Messiah, this is about Jesus, and it's going to describe again his birthplace, his authority, his eternal existence, his shepherding, his greatness, his victory, his peace, and his vengeance. The prophecy begins with the siege of Jerusalem and the smiting of Israel's judge. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. And I quote, the daughter of troops, oh, let me, let me, I'm sorry, I thought he was going to quote the verse. Let me go to Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Let's read this, Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. So let's leave that there. Now go back to the commentary. The prophecy begins with the siege of Jerusalem and the smiting of Israel's judge. 
the daughter of troops is Jerusalem, which was the subject of the previous prophecy. Troop refers to soldiers and and warfare. The statement, gather thyself in troops, means to prepare for war. Micah is saying, gather your soldiers together, prepare to face the enemy. All right, I think we all, I think everyone agrees that this is a reference to someone coming against Jerusalem and that it is telling them to gather themselves in war. No, we haven't, at least I have not seen too many people I don't, maybe there's a commentary or two out there, but I think almost everyone at this point understands everything to be very literal. Literal people preparing themselves for a literal war, literal Jerusalem. And now who is coming, who is ruling and reigning at this time? There's lots of dispute on when this occurs, right? Is this in the 700s? Is this in the late 500s? Is this Hezekiah, Zedekiah? Who's coming? Is this who's is this Nebuchadnezzar? Is this Shennacherib? There's all kinds of disputes here. We've talked about that all week. Let's just see what this commentary does. All right here we go. Micah five one refers to the destruction of Jerusalem by what do you think? What do you think going to say? The Assyrians or the Babylonians? What do you think this commentary is going to say? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? I'm asking like there's people, I don't know if anyone's actually listening right now, okay? There's no one in this building, okay? So I'm pretending that that, that I'm doing this with my church. Okay, hey, everyone, what do you think? Who Who is it gonna pick, the Assyrians or the Babylonians? Who, who, who do you think, who do you think? Okay, well, there's no one in the building to answer. So let me just tell you. Micah 5.1 refers to the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon and the smiting of Israel's king and judge Zedekiah, 2 Kings 25, 1 through 7. So this commentary, once again, this is the, this seems to be the, like, most go with this direction. We're still blown away by the sermon that we listened to who just didn't even bother to tell you that there's, there's another view out there. I'm not even going to tell you that. He just said, this is Hezekiah and this is the Assyrians and that Hezekiah had basically done wrong and trying to make an, an allegiance with the Babylonians, right? So he makes, it's just crazy what we heard in that sermon. But this commentary is like, no. This is Babylon coming against Jerusalem. And the judge here who's going to be smacked in the face is Zedekiah. And we read about this in 2 Kings 25, 1 through 7. But this is not the end of Israel's ruler. The covenant of David was not cut off with Zedekiah, as we see in the next verse of the prophecy. We know that Micah 5, 1 is not speaking of Christ because the judge of Israel of verse 1 is contrasted with the ruler of Israel in verse 2. God perhaps uses the term judge in verse 1 of Zedekiah in the sense of irony because he was not a true judge over Israel as he should have been. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Let's read it. So, according to this, Micah 5, 1, this is, a, this is telling you what's, get, what's happening. The Babel, or what's going to happen? The Babylonians are going to come against Jerusalem. Zedekiah, 
the, the king of Judah is going to be taken. He's going to, in a sense, be humiliated, being smited in the face, a sign of humiliation. He's going to be humiliated. He's going to be drugged to Babylon in chains. His children are going to be killed in front of him and his eyes are going to be torn out. Horrible situation. The judge of Israel is going to be smited, right? But, but in contrast to that, so in contrast to Jerusalem, Bethlehem. In contrast to Jedekiah, Jesus. Verse two, but thou Bethlehem. See, Jerusalem may be in, uh, uh, in uh, you know, Jerusalem may be the place that you would think, okay, that's that's where it should happen. I mean, Jerusalem. No, no, it's not gonna be in Jerusalem. It's gonna be in Bethlehem, Ephratah. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me. That is to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Zedekiah is going to die in Babylonian captivity. He is just a human being. He died. His eyes were ripped out. Just nothing. So the contrast is between mighty Jerusalem and lowly Bethlehem and Zedekiah defeated who dies versus a ruler who's going to come from Bethlehem who is eternal. There's, there's a contrast here. There's a massive contrast here. Okay. Now the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2 through 3. The ruler of Israel will not come from Jerusalem. He will come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is located about six miles south of Jerusalem and the hill country of Judea on the way to Hebron. Bethlehem is the same as Ephrata, where Jacob's wife, Rachel, died, Genesis 35, 19, 48, 7. Bethlehem means house of bread. It was an, it was an insignificant town, not even mentioned in the list of Judah's towns and cities in Joshua uh, 15. It is called Bethlehem Ephrata to distinguish it from the Bethlehem that was located in Zebulun, Joshua 19, 15 through 16. It was the same, it was the home of Boaz and Ruth, Ruth 2, 4, and 4, 11, and of David, 1 Samuel 17, 12. It was the birthplace of Jesus, Matthew 2, 1, Luke 2, 1 through 20. It was the place where sheep uh, grazed in the days of David, 1 Samuel 17, 15, and Jesus, Luke 2, 8 through 15. And shepherds still ga- ga- graze sheep on Bethlehem's hills. All right. Okay. So that's all basic, straightforward. Christ will come forth uh, unto Jehovah. Christ came to earth at the father's direction and came to do the father's will. Christ will be the ruler in Israel. He will rule Israel forever as king of kings, sitting on the throne of David. Christ going, Christ's going forth have been of old from everlasting His going forth refers to his works, his doings. Christ has no beginning. He is God and and was with God from the beginning. This speaks of the Trinity. Christ is the Son of God, one with the Father. Christ is before all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God will give Israel up until Christ is brought forth. This is Micah 5, 3. Let's read now Micah 5, 3. Therefore will I give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth 
then the remnant of the brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. How is the commentary going to handle this? Here we go. Um, God will give up, God will give Israel up, I should say, until Christ is brought forth. This verse sees the restoration of Israel immediately following the birth of Christ, but this is because the church age is a mystery that has not, that was not revealed to the Old Testament prophets. All right, so what they're explaining here is that in this passage, you have the birth of Christ, and then you seem to immediately have, you have this idea that, hey, Israel's going to be given up. They're going to be They're going to be, in a sense, given up. They're going to be in captivity. They're going to be suffering. They're going to be under the rule of different people. They're going to be given up until the time which she, uh, which, till that she which travelleth have brought forth. So in other words, the idea is, okay, they're going to be like this. And then when she brings forth this son, who's going to be born in Bethlehem, boom, then, uh, then the remnant of the brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. It is spoken of as like, so Jesus is born, boom, immediately they are restored. Well, we know that did not literally happen, like at the first coming. We know it did not happen. So that, that leads some people to say, oh, wait, this is spiritually fulfilled in the church. Well, you don't have to do that. You, you don't have to jump there. What you have to understand is that, is it possible that the restoration is going to occur later? And this commentary explains the reason why is because the Old Testament prophets did not see the church age. It was a mystery to them. And they put, put as a reference to prove this, they put uh, Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. Let's jump over there. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. I know those who hold to an all-mill position will say, see, you're going to that dispensational stuff. Yeah, and you're spiritualizing in verse 3 when you didn't spiritualize in verse 2. So, yeah, so mock all you want. I can turn around and mock you because your hermeneutic is inconsistent, right? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. Ephesians uh, chapter 3, or I'll just start in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus, uh, uh, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to you word for how that by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote a four and few words, whereby when you read, you might understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ. So this mystery that is being spoken of, according to this commentary, is the mystery really of, well, the Gentiles coming in, the whole church age, the whole, this whole thing that in Old Testament prophecy, you really have, okay, Israel being punished, they're being in captivity, they're suffering, they're broken up, Messiah comes, boom, restoration, a king rules, and everything is fixed. And this is why when you read the New Testament, you see the, fair, the the Jews at the time of Jesus really thought, okay, when it, it's time now, restore the kingdom, make everything right. And they didn't understand the death, the suffering, and the church age. They, they, they're waiting for the restoration. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen literally and doesn't mean I should run around and try to find some figurative fulfillment or spiritual fulfillment in the church. 
all right? God will give Israel up until Christ is brought forth. These verses see the restoration of Israel immediately following the birth of Christ. It's not going to follow the immediate, it's not going to follow the birth of Christ immediately. It's going to follow after the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled, all right? Now, verse 4, Micah chapter 5, verse 4. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide for now, shall he be great um, uh, unto the ends of the earth. This seeming to be referring to Jesus, referring to the Messiah. Let's see what this commentary does here. Well, they call this verse, the Messiah is the Lord's shepherd. So they believe this is referencing the Messiah. It says, compare John 10, 11, and 14. The Messiah feeds in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the Lord. Christ said, I and my father are one, and he that hath seen me hath seen the father. Imagine God himself as a shepherd. God as a shepherd is an amazing revelation of his character. This refers to his love and kindness. The shepherd is is a lowly occupation in this present world, but caring for his people is not below God's office. Christ is meek and lowly in heart. God as a shepherd tells us that he is omnipotent, that he has omnipotent strength to care for his sheep and omniscient wisdom to lead them. He is immortal and will never leave them. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ is Israel's shepherd. He will fulfill God's covenant with her. He will protect and guide and feed her. Christ is also the shepherd of everyone who puts his or her faith in him. So they are saying, verse four, let me read it again. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. So in other words, the Messiah is is connected with the father, right? It's connected with the father. Um, And the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, he's going to do his actions in the, in the name of God. Again, there's a connection between the Son and the Father and the Messiah and the Father and, and, and God the Father. Um, and they shall abide, abide for now, shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And the fact that he's going to stand and feed in the stream, it, it's just weird that. Yeah, okay. Well, I I could I could go some different directions there with verse four, but I do agree it's re- referencing the shepherd, the uh the Messiah. I do, I do agree it's ref- referencing the Messiah. I don't think there's, there's any way to get around that. To, to, to go away from that would just be all kinds of problems. All right, Micah 5, 5. We read these words. Micah 5, 5. All right. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come in unto our land and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall he, we ri- rise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Now, this is where things get really confusing. I'm very curious to see what this commentary is going to do. Here we go. 5.5 five says, Christ is peace. Christ is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6. He purchased redemption to bring peace between God and man. His fruit is always peace, and he will bring peace to the world at his return. All right, so it just mentions the fact that he's peace. Okay, now, Micah 5, 5 through 6. Christ defeats the Assyrian. Now, this is what we want to look to. 
now this is what how this is what this reads. Now you just put your thinking caps on because this is a perspective that we may not have have thought about up to this point. According to this commentary, this refers to Christ's defeat of the Antichrist. Now, I'm not such a good fan of this right now because, once again, it's kind of taking the term Assyrian or the Assyrians and turning it into something other than actual Assyria. But, all right, let's see why. When Assyria came into the land in the 8th century B.C. and destroyed the northern kingdom, Israel didn't raise principal men against it and didn't lay waste uh, and didn't lay waste the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod, Mesopotamia. This prophecy looks, uh, uh, so in other words, let me read it this way. When Assyria came into the land in the eighth century and destroyed the Northern kingdom, none of this happened. All right. This prophecy looks to the future. All right. Now, almost everyone agrees it looks to the future. Almost everyone agrees it looks to the future. Uh, there's very little, dis- now, well, there's, there's some commentaries who would disagree, but I think the majority seems to say it looks to the future. The question is, does it, does it look to the future in some kind of literal way or does it look to the future for some kind of spiritual fulfillment? Let's see what this commentary does. Now, now listen carefully. Here's what they're going to say. I get nervous when I read these kinds of words, but this is what they do. Micah uses the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod, referring to Babylon, as synonyms. Micah 5, 6, because in Micah 5, 6, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. He's saying that the land of Nimrod and Assyria, one is Babylon, one is Assyria, and it's using them as synonyms. Okay, maybe, right? From God's perspective, the Assyrians and the Babylonians were one. They lived in the same region and had the same character. The Babylonians conquered and absorbed the Assyrians in 2 Chronicles 33, 11. The king of Babylon is called the king of Assyria. Let's look, let's see, second, that's, uh, second Chronicles 33.11. Let me look at this, Second Chronicles 33.11. Second Chronicles 33.11. I got to look at this to see. Second Chronicles 33.11. Second Chronicles 33.11. Wherefore, the Lord brought unto them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh from the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. So according to this, I'm going to read this again. In Second Second Chronicles 33.11, the king of Babylon is called the king of Assyria. So they're making, they're trying to make a textual argument that the Assyrians and the Babylonians at some point are almost verged, are, are almost merged into one. They're almost can be used synonymously. All right, now let me read this all again. Micah uses the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod, referring to Babylon as synonyms. From God's perspective, the Assyrians and Babylonians were one. They lived in the same region and had the same character. The Babylonians conquered and absorbed the Assyrians 
And Second Chronicles 33, 11, the king of Babylon is called the king of Assyria. The foundation of Assyria and Babylon goes back to Nimrod and Asher. Nimrod founded ba- Babel and his associate Asher founded Nineveh, Genesis 10, 8 through 12. These kingdoms were one in spirit and objective and character, being the beginning of the devil's world system and the forerunners of the Antichrist end time Babylon. The Assyrian Empire was followed by the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. So the Asian Empire was followed by the Babylonian, the the Medo-Persian, and the Greek and Roman. In God's eyes, these ancient kingdoms had the same idolatrous spirit and moral character and formed one great image of pagan rebellion described in the vision of Daniel 2. So in God's eyes, all of the ancient pagan kingdoms that arose in Mesopotamia are described by Daniel are Assyrians. Since this is true for Medo-Persia, it would be true for Greece and Rome too, since they are part of the same image and prophetic vision. So they're trying to use a textual argument that the 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 Assyrians and the Babylonians are synonyms and that they all basically fit this idea of this pagan ungodly world system that that's how they're trying to describe this right now it says consider Isaiah 14 25 through 27 I, now we we'd have to go read Daniel 2 we could go to Genesis 10, 8 through 12. There's a lot of scriptures they've given here, but we'll look this one up. Let's go to Isaiah 14, 25 through 27. Isaiah 14, 25 through 27. All right, let's look at this. Isaiah, Isaiah 14, Isaiah 14. I'm in Isaiah 45, so that's not helping. Isaiah 14, here we go. Isaiah 14, and let's look in verse 24. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely I have brought, I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountain tread them underfoot, Then shall his yoke depart from off them and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that I purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. All right. Now, let's see what they have to say here. They say, this commentary, that Isaiah, uh, they said to consider Isaiah 14, 25 through 27. God, now this is what they say, God calls the Antichrist the Assyrian in verse 25. The next two verses make it clear that this is speaking of the Antichrist because it deals with the time when God will punish all nations. All right. I will say this. 
I don't know if I would say that's the Antichrist. I will say this. This is clearly seeming to be referring to a time where God will punish all nations. And I think you could argue that that has never occurred. So it would be looking for something future. And if it's looking for something future, who does it mention? It mentions the Assyrians. If it mentions the Assyrians and it's talking about something future that hasn't happened, well, then it would be perfectly acceptable in Micah to mention the Assyrians referring to something future. That, that's how I would possibly argue. Go to the next page. See what they do here. It says, the next page, consider Ezra 6.22. All right, uh, Ezra 6.22. Let's look at Ezra 6.22. Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. Get there. Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. Uh, Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. Here we go. I'm getting close. Here's Ezra 9. Here we go. Ezra 6, verse 22. And And kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the hearts of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands and the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I don't know what they're doing with this. This seems weird. They said uh, the king of Assyria referred to by Ezra was Darius of Medo-Persia, yet God refers to him as Assyrian. Now, we would really have to break these things down, but if they're accurate, this would seem to indicate that there are times that kings are being referred to as Assyrian, where they're not necessarily really Assyrians, because this is describing the Assyrians are used synonymous with some of these kingdoms that all make up this, like, world system. These All these kingdoms represent that which is and I want to say represent these kingdoms were literal kingdoms, but they all and their character and actions were ungodly and opposed to the things of God. The seven shepherds and eight principal men refer to Jews that Christ will rep- will empower upon his return to lead Israel. They make reference to this in Micah 4, 13. Micah 5, 9, Psalm 149, 6 through 9, Isaiah 41, 14 through 16, Zechariah 12, 6, and Revelation 19, 19 through 20. I'm going to go to Revelation 19, 19 through 20. I'm going to just pull that one out of that group. Revelation 19. Revelation 19, Revelation 19, and we read this, Revelation 19, 19 through 20, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that were worshipped his image. 
These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, uh, which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls which were filled with their flesh. Um, I don't, I don't see that there. I'm not, I, I don't, let me read this again. Uh, yeah, I'm having a hard time with this part. Okay, so let me read this again. Um, where, where is this? Okay, the seven, so the seven shepherds and eight principal men that's mentioned there in Micah 5, um, refer to Jews that Christ will empower upon his return to lead Israel. Okay, let's look at the Zechariah 12, 6. Let's look at Zechariah 12, 6. Now this one, this one, I'm not so sure. Now I understand if you need a future fulfillment, you got to try to find it. But again, I, I think sometimes when if it's future, do we have to find something to explain it? I mean, maybe we just say that's that's how it's supposed to go down because it's what says it's going to happen. I don't have to go find something to try to to explain it. I, I just I don't know about that. Zechariah chapter twelve, verse six. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf, and they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. Now, this one makes a little bit more sense. This is talking about something that's going to happen, that Jerusalem is once again going to, going to be this great city and everyone's going to be defeated and the governors of Judah are going to be a part of it. So that would be some these people being empowered to be a part of Jerusalem's power and defeating everyone. All right, and we, I think you would have to immediately look at Zechariah 12 and go, there has to be a, a future fulfillment there. So that Zechariah 12 makes a little bit more sense. I think maybe then are they comparing that to what happens in Revelation 19? seeming to imply that, well, there will have to be other people involved in that battle? Maybe, all right? It says the expression seven, uh, eight, means that there will be more than enough. Seven is the number of perfection. I don't like that. I think it's more completion, but I don't, I don't like this getting into a little bit of numerology, which I'm not a fan of. So eight is more than perfection. Okay, maybe, I, I don't think we have to do that. I just think, I, you know, in Micah 5, in Micah 5, I'm, I'm going to kind of argue against that. I'm going to go back to Micah 5. It reads, uh, Micah 5, let me see, where is the verse? Verse 6, um, I'll, go, I'll go ahead and read, uh, you know, verse 5. And uh, and this man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we rise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. I'm not going to sit there and say the seven represents this, eight represents... No, if, if this is a literal fulfillment, then I'm going to say there's going to be seven. Eight, It's the numbers represent something literal unless I'm proven other, unless something shows me otherwise. I'm not going to come in and start putting a symbolic nature on the numbers because then you kind of are doing what you're what we accuse other people of doing. And I'm not I'm not going to I don't I'm not a fan of that. There's nothing there that tells me I have to view that in a symbolic way. All right. Um, 
see, what else do they say here? Um, he says, we see the uh, same type of language in Amos 1, 3, uh, and Amos chapter 1, verse 3, Amos chapter 1, verse 6, Amos chapter 1, verse 9, Amos chapter uh, 1, verse 11, and Amos chapter 1, verse 13, for three transgressions and for four. This signifies the full measure of sin. Well, I got no problem in Amos understanding it that way because I think it seems clear. I don't know if I can take what happens in Amos and run back to Micah 5 and then interpret the the 7 and 8 in a similar way. I, I would be hesitant to do, I would be hesitant to do that. Um, it doesn't mean that they had sinned only four times as if to say they have sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned. When one number is followed by the next highest number, it is a poetic framework. The meaning is that there is an adequate or complete number of whatever occurs in the context. Maybe so. I think it makes sense in Amos. I don't know about here in Micah because in Amos it's repeated over and over and over and over and over. So you have to try to go, okay, what's, what's trying to be said here? And I think it's trying to be saying, hey, you sinned uh, all of these times. Okay, but you get the idea. Then Micah 5, 7 through 15. Micah 5, 7 through 15. Uh, Micah 5, 7 through 15. We'll just read it. And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles and the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go th- through, uh, both teareth down and teareth in pieces and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries and all thine enemies shall be cut off. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee. I will destroy thy, char- thy chariots. I will cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. I will cut off witchcraft is uh, out of thine hand and thou shall have no more soothsayers. Thy graven images also will I cut off and thy standing images out of the midst of thee and thou shall no more worship the work of thine hands. I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee, so I will destroy thy cities. And I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. Now, they, this commentary says, this is God's indictment against Israel. All right. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. Christ will, okay, they they jump ahead here. Let me back up here. I I was looking at the wrong page. Christ will deliver the remnant of Israel, Micah 5, 7 through 15. That's what they call this section. Uh, I I jumped to chapter six. I was like, wait, God's indictment against Israel. What's going on? No, that's chapter six of Micah. I apologize. Here we go. The converted remnant will be in the midst of the people as due from the Lord, Micah 5, Uh, verse seven. Israel will be a blessing to the entire world. Uh, Dew is a moisture from heaven. It is a very gentle shower. Dew is used throughout scripture to signify blessing. So Israel is going to be in the midst of the people, the remnant that's going to return, and they're going to be a blessing to everyone. Okay. 
The remnant of Israel will be as a lion among the beasts of the forest. And that day, Israel's enemies will no more be able to resist her than a flock of sheep can resist a lion. The state of Israel has has won her wars since 1948, but she has not won them as a lion against sheep. And her enemies are still very much alive and well. Modern Israel paid a great price to win the War of Independence uh, and the Yom Kippur War. And she did not win the Lebanese war against Hezbollah in 2006. This is because Israel is not yet converted and does not have God's best blessings. Presently, she has only been given enough power to set the stage of, for the events of Daniel's 70th week in Daniel 9.27, particularly the rebuilding of the temple and the rise of Antichrist. When Christ comes, Israel will have been purified and she will no longer trust in horses and war chariots. Witchcraft and idolatry will be destroyed out of her. Micah 5, 10 through 14. Israel will be purified. Israel will be purified. This, this theme shows up throughout the Old Testament where God's like, I'm going to remove this from you. I'm going to purify this. I, that And remember the sermon we heard, completely ripped this out of its context and said that this is about you and that you need to purify sin out of your life. No, this is God is going to purify this out of Israel's life. This is a future promise which has not occurred as of yet. Uh, This refers to a process of chastening and purification that encompasses Daniel's 70th week prophecy, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. This pur- the purpose is to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy, Daniel 9, 24. The prophecy encompasses the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity, the Roman captivity, the 2,000 years of basically being, you know, dispersed, Uh, the covenant Israel will make with the Antichrist and the great tribulation or the time of Jacob's trouble. Christ will judge the heathen, Micah 5.15. It will be such as they have not heard. This refers to the great tribulation, which will be a great time of trouble that has never come on the earth. And then it gives a number of scriptures to compare. And then that's the end of the commentary. All right, so let's now try to work our way through this carefully and summary so that this will make sense, all right? Now, that the only way to do that was to just read through it the way we did because I wanted you just to hear another perspective, okay? So, now, I wish they would have done a lot more. They, they raised some questionable things. I'm gonna now give you our final summary of Micah chapter five. I'm gonna do this. I have no notes. I'm just gonna walk through this and I'm just going to try to give you something that you can grab onto. All right, here we go. Micah chapter five. Let's work through this. Here we go. This should only take about 15 minutes is what I'm hoping. Here we go. Maybe less. Here we go. Verse one, Micah five, one. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughters of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. This is a prophecy of the Babylonians coming against Jerusalem uh, and this is telling them to get themselves ready. And even if they get themselves ready, though, their judge, 
Zedekiah is going to be taken by the Babylonians. He is in a sense smacked in the face. He is humiliated because he's taken in chains. His eyes are ripped out. His children are killed in front of him and he dies in Babylonian captivity. They are, they, hey, this great danger is coming upon you. There's going to be great humiliation. But in contrast to Jerusalem, which is going to be laid, is under siege, to Zedekiah, which is going to be taken in chains and ultimately die. And contrast to that, in other words, that your earthly ruler is not going to help you and all of your efforts are not going to help you. That's not going to work. We know that from history. In contrast to that, not Jerusalem, Bethlehem, not Zedekiah, but the one that's going to come from Bethlehem is going to be the ruler in Israel who is eternal. So all of these things are going on. You can look, you can plan, you can, you can, you can try to manipulate, you can come up with every scheme you want to, but what you should be looking to is to, is to Bethlehem and to the one who's going to come from there, who is the, who is going to be the ruler of Israel, who is eternal. Then verse three, therefore will he, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of ultimately God, is going to give them up. That's got to be Israel, Judah. They're going to be given up. And we know this is just true from history, right? Even when they return from Babylonian captivity, it won't be long. They're under control of Rome. And then after the control of Rome, they are dispersed. 70 AD, everything is destroyed. And, and even today, even though they're back in the land, they're still uh, not in a, a, a ruling situation. No, put it this way. The ruler is not yet ruling for them. They're not completely gathered back together yet. There's, in fact, Jews are still dispersed throughout the, uh, uh, the world. So it's still not been fulfilled. So he's going to give them up. That's the situation even as of today. Until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth then the remnant of the brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. That return will happen. It's not figurative, it's not figurative, it's not spiritual. It's going to happen in a literal way. Israel will be brought back to their land and their king will rule. The only way I can understand that is literal because verse two is literal. They're gonna literally come back and that king is going to rule over them. And the only way I can see a fulfillment of that, since it's never happened in history, is a millennial kingdom at the end uh, for a thousand years where Christ comes back, destroys their enemies. He rules and reigns and Israel is back in the land and all of the promises that have been promised to them will be fulfilled. That's the only, only way I can make it work unless I have to just start spiritualizing this into ways that just destroys the whole Bible. Verse four, and he, speaking of the Messiah, the one born in Bethlehem, shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. So just speaking of Christ, his connection with God the Father. All right, fine. We don't have to spend a lot of time on that. Now, verse five is where everything gets complicated. And this man shall come to be peace. So this Messiah is going to be peace. When the Assyrian shall come into our land and when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. At some point, however you want to understand the Assyrians, if you want to understand the Assyrians as some kind of 
anti connected to the Antichrist, connected to whatever. I just know that whoever the Assyrians are, however they're going to be identified, whenever this occurs, well, they're ultimately, God will ultimately destroy them. Whoever the, I have no clue who the, uh, uh, the seven shepherds and eight principal men are. I don't know. I don't know how they're involved. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to sit there and, and try to, why speculate? This has to be future. Everyone says it's future. So if it's future, here's my, here's my thinking. And I know this is not satisfying to everyone. It's future. I don't understand it. Do you think they understood that a virgin was going to have a baby? Do you think they, under, do you know how many prophecies in the old Testament? They're like, wait, what? What's going to happen? How is that going to even take, how is that even going to occur? You don't have to understand it, right? You don't, all we have to do is realize it has to be future because it's never happened. Everyone agrees it hasn't happened. So then why go spiritualize it? Because, well, the verse two isn't spiritual. So I'm just going to say somehow, literally, the Messiah is going to take care of the Assyrians. Um, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof shall uh, deliver us from the Assyrians when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. The, the Assyrians are going to be destroyed somehow, somehow. I, I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't know how it's going to occur, but it's going to happen. Now, I know in Revelation 19, I, I just have to keep going back to Revelation 19 because this is what I do know. Revelation chapter 19. I do know this is going to happen, all right? And because I think it's very important, okay? Um, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. I know this. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were, uh, were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. If I can turn the page correctly. Dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him. All right. Oh, there's people coming with him. There's going to be an army with him. There's other people involved, right? Uh, they're an army. I'm assuming they're going to be armed, right? Uh, clothed in fine linen, fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it, he should smite the nations. Now nations, I think that can include Assyria, right? Could it? Um, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath, wrath of almighty God. Uh, and then you can, you can just see everything that happens here. There's destruction, there is war, and there's defeat of the enemies. After that complete destruction of everything, chapter 20, millennial kingdom, Christ is ruling and reigning. Israel gets all the fulfillment. I don't know what in the world is going on in five other than I know that the Assyrians are going to be defeated. <laughs> they're, they're going to be destroyed, right? And that, that what else do we need? I mean, what else do we need other than to just know that? I, I don't need, again, I just read, just think of when, when, when Noah was told to build the ark, did he understand a flood? Did he have any clue? Like, 
Sometimes it's just weird that we see these prophecies and like, we've got to figure out every detail. Oh, wait, there's going to be, there's going to be, uh, Seven shepherds and eight principal men. Well, seven represents this and eight. Why do we have to go do all of that? It's a future prophecy. I don't know what that, how that's going to play out. I don't know what that means, but you know what? I don't have to. I know that, I know the basic concept here. So I'm going to just stress. I'm going to, that's where I'm going to stress. Okay. Because I think that's, that's what I'm going to stress and emphasize because I think if we, if we do anything else, we just end up with all of these crazy interpretations that make no sense to me. All right. Verse seven. So after all of that happens, everyone's going to be destroyed and the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as the showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces and none can deliver. Basically, Israel is going to be put back in a place of prominence, a place of blessing, a place of power. That all makes sense in the millennial kingdom. Revelation 19, there's the war everyone's destroyed. Revelation 20, Christ is ruling and reigning for a thousand years. Israel rules and reigns with him. Israel is now in the midst, all the nations around it, it's going to be Israel. It's going to be about Israel and their fulfillment, uh, getting all of these promises. And then verse nine, thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries and all thine enemies shall be cut off. All of Israel's enemies are going to be cut off. They're all going to be destroyed. And then it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee and I will destroy thy chariots. Now, God is going to ensure that Israel is completely purified from all of the sin that they have struggled with since their very beginning. He's going to take away everything from them that they're trusting in. They're not going to have anything to trust in but him because Christ is going to be sitting on the throne. I'm going to cut off the cities of thy land and throw down all thy strongholds. I will cut off the witchcrafts out of thine hand. They're going to be completely purified. They're going to, all of these things that they have relied on is going to be stripped away. They're going to be purified. They're going to be restored. And then it goes on to say, uh, and I will execute vengeance and anger and fury upon the heathen, such as they have not heard. And, and he will judge the heathen. And that's how the prophecy ends. To me, if we just look at it from a very literal way, it's very straightforward. Judah was going to face issues with the Babylonians. But in contrast to what they were dealing with the Babylonians, there's a promise of the Messiah coming in Judah in Bethlehem. And then he will, and then as he moves forward, he will ultimately then bring about the destruction of all of Israel's enemies and they will be restored. This is a basic thing that's repeated over and over in the Old Testament. Messiah will come, destroy Israel's enemies, and restore them. That is why when you read the New Testament, over and over and over, the Jews kept saying, when are you going to set up the kingdom? Do it right now. Come on, restore it. They kept looking for that. Why did they keep looking for that? Because they read left behind or because they they were confused by some dispensationalist? No, because they read the Old Testament and said, see all of these promises? They haven't happened yet. 
Make them happen. When it didn't appear Jesus was going to make it happen, they said, kill him. We're done with him because they didn't get what they wanted at the time. They did not understand the mystery of the church age where Israel is is still set aside. They are blinded until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Once that time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, then God will then turn back and fulfill all of the promises to Israel and Israel will be saved because God doesn't break his promises or break his covenants. Even though they've been unfaithful, even though they've been ungodly, even though they don't deserve anything, God is going to show mercy and grace and faithfulness to the covenant he made. And I'm grateful for that because that means he keeps the promise and covenant he's made with me and salvation. And that even if I am unfaithful, he remains faithful. Just as Israel was chosen by God as a Christian, we are chosen by God. We are God's elect and God keeps his promises to those he chooses and elects. Even when we are unfaithful and we deserve judgment. That's Micah chapter five. There we go. Now, yes, there's a lot of interesting things here in this commentary by how the Assyrians or some of these other nations seem to be referred to as Assyrians. I do think that's interesting. How you got these kings. Wait, that's not an Assyrian king. Why is it called the king of Assyria? So so there may be some textual way to say Assyria can represent a lot of things. All right, great. Bottom line is, whether it represents something or not, I know in Revelation 19, God is coming to destroy the nations. He's coming to destroy the enemies. So whatever name you find in the Old Testament, I am assuming they'll find a way to fit in when that occurs. Some way, shape, or form, they'll be able to fit in right there. And they're going to be destroyed, and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. And at the end of the millennial kingdom, then there's another war, and then they're all totally and completely destroyed at the end of the millennial kingdom, then they're completely destroyed. Is that the judgment upon the heathen at the end of uh, the millennial kingdom? Is that the final judgment upon the heathen mentioned at the end of Micah chapter five? You can read the end of Revelation chapter 20. You'll see what happens. The end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed and everything goes crazy and then they're all destroyed. Then you have the great right throne, final judgment. Is that how Micah five ends? then it all fits perfectly in somewhat of a chronological order. The only thing missing there is the church age because it goes from basically the birth of Christ to the restoration of Israel. Well, the only problem is there's a gap there that nobody could see. And that's us right now, us Gentiles sitting here. We've been brought in. Israel has still been set aside until we're finished. And then when God is done with us, then it moves to them. I know our millennialists don't like that. I know many in the Reformed people don't like that. And they, they think it's foolish and it's stupid. But you can mock it and, and look down upon it. But your solution is all of these passages are just literal, the church, figurative, allegorical. And then, and then magically, oh, well, that verse right there, that's literal. And it's, you can't, that's, that's schizophrenic hermeneutics. And I'm going to reject that on the basis of its hermeneutical inconsistency. Whoa, an hour and three minutes to do that. I hope that was beneficial. I hope I would have liked to have walked through that commentary a little bit slower. And I know I had to kind of just, you know, fly through that commentary 
but I just wanted to, I wanted you at least hear another perspective and um, I hope it, hope it was beneficial. Uh, the reason I had to fly through it is today is Saturday. So we, we, we have to bring this study to an end. So here in a few minutes, we'll introduce next week's study. <laughs> I'm afraid to even look. I'm afraid to, <laughs> we made Micah 5 <laughs> was hard enough. I don't even know what's next. So uh, I'm going to hold my breath and we'll see here in just a few minutes what next week's study is. We'll take a look and we'll come up with next week's Bible ver- uh, Bible memory verse. We'll get everything ready. So, all right. Thanks for listening. I hope it was a good week of Bible study. I hope so. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. Or if you have any questions about what we covered, you can email me that. Or if you're in the Discord group, you can just, well, say I'm completely confused. And I can say, great, go talk to someone else. All right, no, I know I'll do my best to try to explain. All right, everyone have a great day. I'll be back on the air here shortly. God bless.